Hello and welcome to this episode of the Keeping the Peace podcast with me, Alexis Powell Howard. Today I am thrilled to be joined by Andy Rhodes. Andy was awarded the Queen's Police Medal and also an OBE in the Queen's Birthday Honours List this year. Andy is the former Chief Constable of Lancashire Police and together with Dr Ian Hesketh, who I also speak to in this series, they founded the National Police Wellbeing Service Oscar Kilo in 2015. Oscar Kilo is now a government-funded service supporting over 200,000 police personnel and Andy has recently been appointed as the service director. In this slightly longer conversation than usual, because we couldn't stop talking about all the things we're both passionate about, we're discussing the importance of the National Police Wellbeing Service, how it began, why Andy is passionate about wellbeing in policing, and the impact this is having in changing conversation, perceptions and expectations. I hope you enjoy this conversation. You're listening to the Keeping the Peace podcast, produced in collaboration between Oscar Kilo, the National Police Wellbeing Service, and Fortis Therapy and Training. Hi Andy, really good to see you today for the podcast. Thanks for coming along to speak to me. I appreciate you taking time out of your busy schedule. Um, nice to see you. I know that for people who are um, in the police force, they might be some, most people might be aware of you because of the positions you've held and everything, but there'll be also people listening to this who, who don't have any idea. So it would be great if you could kind of introduce yourself and a bit of history, if that's okay. Yes, my name is Andy Rhodes. Um, I'm recently retired Chief Constable of Lancashire Police um, in the UK. Uh, that's a force of about 6,000 people. Um, I'm a Lancashire guy, born and bred. And uh, part of my job, because this is what happens in British police, and some people may not uh, know this, that sort of national work, you get people to do it on top of their day job. So a Chief Constable or somebody who's a subject matter expert will lead on a various aspect of, of, um, of policing or workforce. And um, I was asked to set up the wellbeing service uh, in 2015 um, because of a range of different things that were going on in policing. And um, because I'd done quite a bit of work already in that area. Uh, so as well as being the chief constable, that's one of the things that's led me to our conversation here today, I think, yeah. because I've now retired and I um, run the National Wellbeing Service, Oscar Kilo, which is something we set up many years, well, not that many years ago, actually. I mean, it's really only been formally launched in 2019. Right. So it's still quite early days for it. And um, lots happened in that period of time. We've learned a lot. So we're really keen to talk to you about it today. Yeah. Thanks for the opportunity. Well, it's, I was just thinking 2019 really isn't that long ago. And actually, it mm. feels far more established than that as an organisation, mm. doesn't it? And the research you've been, you've been a part of and the things that you commission, all of the things you're interested in and involved in, it feels like it's been going a lot longer than that. Well, in a sense, I mean, we got the brand and everything set up probably around 2017. We got a small fun, amount of funding, well, you know, from Public Health England at the time, um, which was great because that enabled us to develop a self-assessment framework, the brand Oscar Kilo and the start of a website. And that's literally all we had. <laughs> so, like any good business. <laughs> like any good business. We started with not very much, but we had a band of the willing. And I think looking back, it's been an iterative journey. It's been one of those things where we've gone with where the need has presented and over that period of time there's been a significant presentation of what I would call unmet need yeah it's always been there mm. 
uh, in policing, it's been normalised, but it started to present, which I think is a very positive thing. And then we've ramped up the National Wellbeing Service over the years to take account of that. And one of the things that we've really managed to do is get a seat at the table of where all the big decisions are made. Yeah. Which is difficult for a subject like mental health and well-being. But even in critical incident management now, we are seen as all well-being and mental health and resilience and the support for the workforce is seen as a critical part mm. of the operational response. Mm. More and more, which, you know, it's at the front of the decision making now rather than an afterthought. Which is, which is interesting culturally, isn't it? Because mm. it's, quite a, it's quite a brave a brave step forward to almost, well, as you were saying that, I was thinking almost rip the plaster off and look to see what's going on underneath. Yeah. Because as you said, it's, it's been known in policing that, that these themes are there and there are unmet needs, but acknowledging them and actually doing something about it is a, is a big step. Um, and it's actually a huge thing to acknowledge that those things are there in, in the way that you have done, I think. Yeah, it's, it's very provocative and has been sometimes quite an attritional journey. Mm because it's cultural mm. and whenever you're dealing with culture it's tough it can be a contact sport and that's why you need executive leaders to step up share their personal experiences and feel comfortable doing it mm. uh, and other leaders to start doing that but you also need the infrastructure the wiring diagram because one thing that we've found over the years is there's a lot of opinion you'll find this in your work everyone's got an opinion about the mental health issue mm. not all of it's based on evidence some of it's based on personal experience which is fine but what we didn't have is an evidence base to say actually this stuff is not just harming the health of people in policing it's really affecting service delivery operational risk trust and confidence of the public, all the things that matter. One of the things, Alexis, I really focused on early was saying to people that what really defines in the eyes of a victim or a member of the public who's called for help, excellence in, in a police officer or a member of police staff. Mm. And it, competence is part of that, but we are obsessed with competence in our organisation, which is fine. You know, if you're pointing guns, I mean, I've run counterterrorism firearms operations. I'm, I'm trained to the top level in dealing with firearms command and, and what have you. And I've done all sorts in my career. Competence is essential. Mm. But the real thing that the public value in their hour of need is compassion. Yeah. And you cannot be compassionate in their hour of need if you, your mental health and well-being is not where it should be. Should be. And this job is a challenge for your mental health end of so that that's the case i well and it is and i think it's interesting isn't it because competency is something you can manage you can because you can because you can measure it quite yeah quite effectively and, and one of the challenges i always face is is measuring mental health and measuring well-being because yeah. it is so difficult to nail that down into something that actually makes creates data um, that can then influence where money is spent, you know, where yeah. things are allocated, all of that kind of thing. Because it it's a bit like nailing jelly to a tree. Sometimes it's like you know, there's, well, you know that sometimes what you're doing is making a difference, but how do you actually stick that into a, a diagram? Well, 
because, as you know, the, the main return investment is in prevention. Mm. And how do you measure and put a financial pound sign on something that doesn't happen? <laughs> yeah. Are you with me? So we get this that. policing a lot. You know, the, the yeah. answer to policing isn't actually catching people when they've done something. It's stopping them doing it in the first place. Yeah, but, of course, you can't measure what doesn't happen. No. And so um, that's a really interesting point. I think what we've learned over the years is that two big things for me. One is that there's got to be a good balance between the person, individual's responsibility to see their mental health and well-being as important to them, the families. And if you're choosing this career, you really do need to be on top of your game with it. And more and more people are doing that, which is why we've got a lot more need presented. Yeah, People are more aware now. And the new yeah. generation who are into policing are far more aware. There's no stigma with them. No. The second thing is that, you know, the organisational taking responsibility for the things that we can prove now, on top of the type of work people do, mm. are actually the things that are avoidable stresses. Yeah. That's really difficult for the organisation to sort of look at itself and say, mm, I'm creating a lot of this stress myself. It could be behaviours, it could be unfair promotion processes. We've got all the evidence for this now. Mm. In our survey this year, the third national survey, this is the biggest survey of police workforce in the world, right? We can prove that. 36,000 responses, mm. independently done. And what we call hindrance stressors, are absolutely screaming off the page. Mm. They, this survey can now prove that hindrance stresses are driving fatigue, intention to quit, yeah. not feeling valued, inability to psychologically detach, etc., etc., etc. That's you, your family, or a victim of crime. Mm. You you can't ignore it. No. <laughs> and, and so we've moved, I think, from a conversation to the data. And where we're at now, Alexis, is that we're really interested in proxy measures of mental health that can be collected as data lifetime using technology. And we're really excited about some of the research we've done about sleep and fatigue as a precursor issue to mental health oh, issues. Oh, without doubt, yeah. So we're taking a step back from the mental health thing, saying, well, what's driving the mental health issue? Is it actually mental health or is it just emotional distress yeah. caused by things that are happening in work or in life? Mm. Is it a passing thing mm. uh, rather than knee-jerking to labelling people? Yeah. And, um, and, and, and for, me, I mean, for me, one of the things, obviously, we provide a lot of therapy, we work at a lot of offices and lots of different sectors, and, and we work in schools as well and all these different places. And I think therapy isn't the answer this ongoing problem yeah. you know it is it absolutely yeah. you, know, and I, you know I'm passionate about it about yeah, yeah. it but but there's it's the system it's the systems that need to change because yes. you can't keep trying to put support in place for people and therapize them um yeah. as a as a solution or medicate them or sorry medicate, or medicate or, them yeah absolutely yeah, yeah. Is what's a, happening yeah there's a solution to the a response to a system that's not working for people yeah, exactly and as you know I'm married to a you are not going to counsel your way out of this problem and it's not just in the police this is in every organization it's in sight as you say in the developed world anyway all the data is there to show it and it's in the education system and i think that's 
that's something, that's a sophisticated conversation about mental health we need to be having. We need to move away from this sort of, not having a stigma around it is not the end game. That's a means to an end. What we've done is we've taken the lid off, but the system has not adjusted to meet the need. Yeah. And it, as, an, as an employer, that is going to cause you problems if your culture, your support systems, your EAP, whatever it is that you need to have in place, yeah. is not where it needs to be. Because unusually, what we're finding, normally in a big organisation, you'll find the transactional side of the job, charging ahead, and then the culture's 10 years behind. Yeah. <laughs> when it comes to this issue, the culture is changing faster than the yeah. transactional side. And that's causing pressure all over the place. Yeah, it's interesting that, isn't it? Because I was, you know, if, if we, if the nuts and bolts of the system, I always think of it in terms of, you know, like a car engine or something like that. If those things aren't, if each of those components aren't ready to um, be upgraded into working in a different way, you're almost dragging that weight behind the new data well, and the new processes. I think it's potentially even worse than that mm. because I think what we've done for the right reasons is reduce stigma, mm. the need presenting, and because the system isn't geared up to meet it, mm. there is almost a backlash back towards people who are now talking about mental health. So I often say to people, so by another two years, 40% of all police officers will have less than five years service. Wow. It's a whole generation of new people mm. who've come through an education system where they've been told speak to us about mental health. Mm. Not always with great outcomes, of course, but... You are best. <laughs> they're more diverse, they're more inclusive, they're more open-minded as a general rule. I've met them, I met all my new recruits, and they are phenomenal mm. human beings, I think, the vast majority. But their expectations about what they're going to get in the organisation or, yeah. or up here, the bar is very high mm. and it's not there yet to meet them. So what's happening is there's almost a cultural backlash going, who are these snowflakes that are joining? You know, as soon as they see a dead body, they this time. So, you know, I had this from a lot of my people said, hold a minute. I got them together in the hundreds, sergeants, inspectors said, these people have stepped forward to do one of the toughest jobs that there is out there. How many of your kids could do this job? I said, because mine certainly couldn't. Yeah, I would not expect them to do it because they just couldn't do it. And, they, you know, they're not, they're not, they're not, it's not what they would, it's the challenges may be something that they'd find daunting. Our job's to help them, not criticise them. And actually, if you knew as much as you should know about personal development, the fact that they are aware of the stress, the anxiety, and they're talking to you about it yeah. is the holy grail yeah, of resolving mental for. health issues. Yeah. Yeah, you, your awareness is the key, so don't bottle it up. Mm -hmm. And the culture's trying to bottle it back up, I think, and say, put your shoulders back, this is a tough job, if you don't like it, leave. Yeah. Which, you know, for some people, it may be too much for them. You know, because, you know, the amount of trauma and all that sort of stuff that's experienced. But what we want is compassionate, self-aware people who can hold on to that kindness 
and still do this incredibly tough job. And recognising that that, that, Pete, that officers are, are human. I mean, you're absolutely right. Those new recruits, and we've we work with some in therapy. You know, the the expectation that the sheer joy of being, you know, a police officer and actually getting in and going through all the training and everything else. Um, it, you know, you don't want to snub that out. You want it to be something that drives them forward in their career. But there is that um, vulnerability, and you know, we look back years ago I used to run a fish and chip shop and I used to work with police quite closely because we had lots of you, you know young people who were smashing yeah, yeah. windows and all the rest of it and we used to have meetings quite regularly and um you know it was a very different vibe and I didn't know anything about it then you know than than the, the officers that I work with now um you know there, there was a we used to meet in the in the bar at the police station you know that's where our meetings were and things yeah, like yeah, that yeah, yeah. where you had a yeah. different way of processing some of this these these things it was it was almost like you don't discuss it here, you discuss it there. Yeah. Um, and you've got, you know, recruiting these young people who, as you say, can be incredible people, lots of ideas, very open minded. So that's exactly what the organisation needs um, to move it forward in the way that especially Oscar Kilo is promoting. But it's challenging for the, the remainder of the officers who are in there and also um, recognising the challenges of the job and how to support those people effectively. So they're not going off work and they're not you know they're not sick or suffering with stress load and you know all of those things as well yeah and I, th I think you know i mean i've i've written a a sort of a chapter for a book for a university and i'll ask me how i did it somebody asked me and, and it, the book was entitled lived experience it was all about law enforcement blue light and i put a lot of work into this and a lot of self-reflection because and i brought in a lot of you know sort of therapeutic concepts and I think we've missed this one Alexis you know the the process that people go through when they assimilate to a culture but also start to experience things they've never experienced before is quite well known in therapeutic practice so you have to have supervision to maintain unconditional positive regard empathy yeah. and congruence yeah right I know this because I'm married to a, <laughs> Cause, cause... A, a, a version of Alexis, you see. So, <laughs> and I, I find this fascinating concept because it's to, it's to avoid judgmental, pejorative yeah. behaviours moving between client and therapist, right? Mm -hmm. I will guarantee you that very soon after you join the police and you go operational, you start to form pejorative judgmental views of people and places and types of incidents. Mm. And it's not all because the culture's assimilating you. Part of it is that your lived experiences, that you, the way your brain you know, responds to those experiences is, is, we're finding more and more out about that now, aren't we? Yeah. You know, how this can create a belief system, fight or flight. You know, it's a, it's a, it's a scary job on your own. Mm. You know, in some of the places our people police, mm. um, it is it, it takes courage. Oh, and when you're in that situation, your brain is firing up, fight or flight, mm. and it's forming belief systems that then start to become the way you see the world. Mm. I've experienced this in a previous in my first marriage. Yeah. And what happens is by going to the police bar and only talking about it there is that all of a sudden you think you're living in a parallel universe to everybody else. Yeah. 
which I still think now, because I wonder how speak to people who are bothering about, you know, what sort of car they're going to get and all this sort of thing. Like thinking, not you, don't, you don't even know what's going on around the corner. No. Are you with me? And yeah. so you start thinking, you're all in a bubble. And um, even your own family and close friends. So you start tightening into your culture and you... You know, you sort of bond with your colleagues because... But it becomes a family in its own right, doesn't it? It becomes it does, a family of choice. Great. It's great because you rely on each other and you understand each other mm. and you get each other. But for other people who've been close to you, mm. it excludes, starts to exclude them sometimes. Mm. Uh, and I see this happening a lot. It certainly happened to me. Mm. And um, I wish I'd known, I'd known what was happening. <laughs> Are you with me? I didn't even know it was happening to me. Mm. And of course, there's this tough, this is great culture that's just waiting with you with open arms to mm. jump in and go, yeah, I'm just like you. I see the world like you see it now. Yeah. And I think this is fundamentally not just an issue for police in this country, but across the world. We, we link in with Osculo, with law enforcement across the globe. And I was listening the other day to Malcolm Gladwell's new book, Talking to Strangers. Mm. I didn't realise it had so much stuff in about policing, but it hits on all these areas. Mm. Mm. How well, those interactions, Alexis, under pressure can go very badly wrong mm. because of all these different things we're talking about. Yeah, and, and I think try, when you've been in that situation, you know, and it's happening daily, you know, it's happening relentlessly as well, you don't get a chance to change your perspective or think or recover and it's having you're absolutely right I mean in my in, our, in my sector you know in terms of therapy you know we do have we have peer support we have supervision we have reflective practice you know we've we, yeah. we have therapy if we need it you know the yeah. whole culture is set up to keep yourself well because you can't listen to what we listen to and help people with the you know the, the deepest darkest worries and traumas and shame if you're not making sure that you're looking after yourself and then you, you look at things like policing or social work or NHS or whatever it might be and, and think that those people have, are dealing with it, the reality of it happening right now in front of their very eyes and those support mechanisms haven't been in place. So the and that, Yeah, it, it is exactly what you're saying. And you know, the damaging side of not doing that, I'm starting to try to, so I think we, We've, we've, we've tried to promote it by doing debriefs. Yeah. So, so you know, we call it a checkup for neck up in our house. Are you with me? So <laughs> let's make it normal that a team sits around and mm. says, how's everyone doing? Mm. You're, you know, Alex, you've been to a couple of ticket jobs recently. Okay. Mm. And the team is a really good starting point for that. But you've got to have the right leadership in the team, the right culture, we, we had in my force, you know, people who were trained in sort of basic counselling skills, coordinators who would basically jump in at the back of a team briefing and impromptu do that. Mm -hmm. My um, occupational health team, you know, there went out to parade rooms mm -hmm. and just hung around with people and gone, I'm a therapist. It's not scary, you know. <laughs> you know, and they'll say that they, are, they start to have more conversations than therapy sessions. Mm -hmm because they're breaking the barriers down. You know, nobody wants to drive to headquarters, park the car in front of the occupational health unit. It's got a big sign saying, you're having problems, basically. Yeah. I mean, our occupational health unit at my old force, the front entrance was opposite the Pressure Standards Office. 
Yeah. And you know, these are things that like, it is if you're already struggling and you're walking onto the headquarters site, you're thinking so everybody's looking at me. Well, even if you, even if they're not, that's how you feel, isn't it? Yeah, and it's like, you know, we've got to just start empathising a bit more with what it's like to struggle with your mental health because it's incredibly difficult if you start struggling with mental health. And it's very difficult for people to understand as well because it's yeah. complex, isn't it? You know, it's it very is. unique. It is. And, and I think, I mean, there was some research on years and years ago, I think it was Leicester University on memory, and they, would, they talked about things like you just described, you know, the environment and yeah. thinking about what, you know, what the environment says about the service you're providing, where it's positioned, how people access it, you know, what it feels like when you're in it, you know, all of these things, which, you know, for me, I've got obviously therapy spaces and things and think about it all the time. But if you're not somebody, if you're just thinking we need a service and we need to set it up, um, and you're not someone who's ever ever thought about mental health or ever struggles with your mental health. Those intricacies, those layers, aren't things that would necessarily cross your mind. You see, there's a building, and you yeah. think we're going to yeah. do it in there because that's practically the yeah. space is there. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> but it yeah. means it symbolizes so much to other people yeah. who are using it. Yeah, and I think you know. I mean, we had oh, we had six thousand people, so. On, an annual, on a year, we'd normally have around 200, 220 referrals for talking therapies mm. of various kinds. Mm. This was before we started the wellbeing agenda. Mm. I heard that just before I left, we are now topping 11 or 1200 a year. Wow. That's out of 6,000 people. And a lot of those people are police staff who are not going to be at the front end of the organisation, you know, so there's only three and a half thousand police officers there. You're talking 18% a year are getting talking therapies. Mm. Now, people go, oh, oh, it's a tsunami. Well, no, we geared up for this. Mm. We did gear up for it. I got a good person in um, who's a phenomenal um, person in, the space, in this space and, you know, got the capacity there, got the right approach, as you say, very much an outreach approach to this. And um, what, we've, what we did is hold the line with it. We didn't become overwhelmed and start kicking back at it. I was very clear, this is what I've asked for. And, you know, if this was a bad back or a bad knee, and we had 1,200 people a year coming in for physiotherapy, we'd be going, what's causing the bad knee? <laughs> yeah. Are you with me? Get some yeah. new boots in or whatever <laughs> yeah. it might be. Are you with me? The car seats aren't good enough. But we don't do it because mental health seems to be something that people struggle to grasp as a real issue sometimes. And so, you know, we, and, and I said, I'm glad they're sticking their hand up. Because, and honestly, I got emails from people with 20 odd years service in road death investigation. And he said, I thought all this was corporate bullshit, well-being. I don't even like the word, it's like management guilt. I've been fine. And I have seen some bad stuff because they do. And they do the lot. They do the scene, they do the coroner's stuff, they do the family, they do the court, don't they? Mm. Tough, one of the toughest jobs in policing. He said, well, this job I went to recently just broke me. Yeah. Never saw it coming. He said, he said it, it was just like a shock to me. And I went back to the Rose Policing Base at three in the morning. He said... The sergeant was great, the inspector was great, the superintendent checked in on me, and 
the head of my psych unit was there at three in the morning. And he said, that's when I knew you were serious. Yeah. That's what it takes to prove to a culture mm. as tough as the one in policing, because sometimes it has to be tough mm. that you're serious about it. You've got to walk the talk. And you've got to back it up with the right people at the right time when people need it. Because if we'd have missed his open window, well, we'd have lost him. Yeah. And he'd been up you know, and he is probably one of the most dedicated people that you will find in policing. Mm. And so we won't give up on it because I think we exist in the wellbeing service too. Uh, show people what works mm. uh, you know because we've got a strong evidence base around this and we've got the research and the data but and how to get there yeah so it's we're here how, to help <clears throat> we're to help we lead horses to water mm. they've got a drink mm. but we're also here to provoke the culture and avoid it snapping back mm. because you know we, we 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 we've got the argument we've got the business case for it so to speak you know which every global organization as you know is trying to create this mentally healthy workplace yeah and that's all we're asking for yeah and, and it's about the it's about getting it right in terms of you know we talked about congruence it's that it's the it's the authenticity isn't it behind what you're doing driving this forward and trying to and you're recognizing that actually we can't and i see it all the time and i know you will as well in terms of different um businesses where there's big groups of people is that incongruence between what we're saying and what we're doing yeah you know yeah. we're talking yeah. a good game yeah. but actually there's nothing to back it up yeah and, particularly and then, under pressure yeah and so you lose the trust of the people especially those old hands who've been there for a long time you lose you lose you lose their um interest their engagement their um motivation to be involved in something like that and you're right, you get one shot sometimes at that, which, you know, sometimes you hit, sometimes you, you'll miss. But um, recognising that more and more in terms of the, the way we are culturally in terms of society as well and what we expect of ourselves, we, we've got to get it right as, a, as something that actually has purpose and is impactful within an organisation. We can't tick boxes anymore because no. we're seeing the impact of that it, it looks lovely <laughs> on the internet yeah. <laughs> but actually yeah. if there's nothing there that behind literally what you see on that screen or yeah, yeah. bit of information yeah. you've been given um it, it's literally a way well it's a waste of money for a start but it also means you miss those opportunities doesn't it well there's <clears throat> a couple of things on that one that um spring into my mind when you when you've said that because you, you're right on the money with it is First of all, it's sort of like, because I think in a lot of organisations, they deal with things that as a start and a finish. Mm. You know, particularly men, I'm a, I'm a man, right? I like to deal with everything like it's a football match, starts here. <laughs> yeah. You know, and it's like men are from Mars, room for Venus, isn't it? Yeah. You know, what's, what's your problem? I'll fix it for you. I don't want you to fix it. I just, just want you. <laughs> I want you to listen. Have you been talking to my husband? <laughs> Uh, right, this is work in progress, believe you me. Right? And it's, it is a default position for a lot of people and a lot of cultures to want to see a problem and fix it. See, fix, see, fix. You can't fix this problem. It's not about fixing it. It's about acknowledging it, recognising it, listening. And no, people are not expecting you to change the world. No. They want to see that you are listening and you're doing your best. 
at an organizational level. And, you know, I think the, the, the work that we get involved in now, we see, and I see it because I, I do other stuff outside of policing as well, it's like the Wild West of mental health out there. It's like people are just desperate to throw something at it yeah. without stopping and going, actually, most of what we need to do is free because it's about treating each other with more respect yeah. and fixing the bloody printer. Yeah, well, I was thinking, when you said it earlier, I think we did a we did a survey in one of the police forces, um, a wellbeing survey, and put in it about stressors and all that kind of yeah, thing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The things, one of some of the main things that came back were my computer doesn't work properly, my chair's really uncomfortable, I don't like yeah, the yeah. blue in my office, and there's no windows, or the temperature's not right. There's stresses, it's aren't there? The oldest one in the book, mm. right? It's the oldest one in the book. This, right? You, there's there's books going back centuries on this. Logistics matter. Yeah. The morale, motivation, and discretionary effort. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, because, and it is unforgivable to get logistics wrong because it's within your control most it's of the time. Been, and mostly they're quick wins as well. Yeah, that's right. Mm. Do you, you know, this is the hindrance stressor thing now that, you know, we're, we just, we're, you know, we are looking at technology to help us solve this as well as a new way of leadership. This is what's been uh, progressed by some forces now that we're working with, which is great because technology has got the solution to improve work quality and remove non-value work. We were talking about this the other day about CRM and the like, yeah? yeah. It is out there. Mm. And yet we are still holding on to quite traditional ways of working and data is overwhelming us. Mm. Demand is overwhelming us. Are you with me? And so I think there's, there's real opportunities to um, you know, get catch up quite frankly with some other sectors that the public yeah. are used to dealing with big organisations around certain things mm. in a different way now, aren't they? As long as it's good and it works, it's fine. So I do, I do think that's the that's the sort of I think it's a positive. I'm an optimist, right? And I, I look at this and I think, well, if we're having this conversation now, we've progressed yeah. from seven from 2015, where all we had was a like a rubbishy website, quite frankly. <laughs> yeah, we're having a conversation now about the purpose of work, work quality, mm. um, you know, leadership style, hindrance stresses, control the controllables. Uh, well, you know, and, and I think that that is also about when you are a leader in an organisation, it's extremely tough. Staff engagement, if you do it properly, is the toughest thing you'll do because it's humbling. Yeah. Um, you leave work every day thinking, I've gone two steps backward today. <laughs> You're you know not I mean? working. I'm trying my best. So it's a lot easier to be command and control. Yeah, it is, yeah. It's a lot easier to come to work every day and say, oh, I've told you, turn left, turn right, red screens, fill it all in. Right, I'm not interested in listening to your opinion, right. quite frankly. Mm -hmm. So I know it's tougher, and I know for some people it's not what they signed up to. So I, I, I also take a very sort of supportive, non-judgmental view sometimes of people who are finding the leadership piece around well-being and mental health difficult yeah. because that's a, it's a very personal agenda, very it's personal. Also, it's also a very personal investment, isn't it? Because, you know, yeah. you, you have to model it as a manager or as a leader. And I think, 
if that's some if you're protecting yourself or if you've you know you've you've got those different personas that you use in order to protect any vulnerability it's very difficult to then create a culture within your team where that's okay if you if you find that hard and i, well, and I think so, yeah. it's, it's a context of the individuals isn't it as to what's that resistance about or what's the avoidance about um what's motivating that and i think for me i always th- i always go in with curiosity like i'm really curious to understand i want to understand your perspective or why that's a struggle because I can help from that perspective I can't help if I if we're going in there as a kind of almost a a disciplinary conversation about you know something nobody wins that actually no 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 that's right and you know that's what happens a lot of the time people default to process policy and we get ironically we're the people trying to improve this but we're the ones who track the fire from people who are really upset, they've had bad experiences, some of them are unwell. Mm. And it can be quite unpleasant on social media um, and, and the like. Mm. And, and it's difficult when you're a leader when that's happening as well, because you feel as though you're getting accused of failing when actually quite a lot of people are doing the best. But if you, if you take that as a personal thing, it's an ego thing for you. You're going to back away from it, I'm telling you now, right? You're just not going to bother. So you've got to be able to understand your own vulnerability. You've got to maybe have struggled yourself on occasion. And you've got to read, study it, apply yourself to it like you would. So when I got trained as as firearms or whatever, I had to study, train, be tested, deep dive into all this stuff because I knew I had to be good at it. And, you know, so few people spend any time reading about this subject. And it's like the most important thing in life, really, when you think about it. Are you with me? Well, it's like people, you know, I'm not saying everyone should sit at home every night reading deep, meaningful books about psychology. What I'm saying is that they need to, if you want to be a leader in an organisation in 2022, you need to be competent around mental health you need to be comfortable having a conversation and if you're not naturally empathetic yet you need to be able to acknowledge it and work with people who are and be open and honest about it and do your best are you with me yeah so it's 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 a humbling area of work for a lot of leaders and i think you know we push everything to line managers on mental health and those are the key to you know 50 percent of your well-being is your line manager well, well you know you look at most line managers and mine was saying to me i'm just glad all these kids are back at 10 o'clock at night <laughs> <laughs> i like counting a big count of hours you want me to have a conversation about the mental health malavati you know, yeah yeah it's like give me a break <laughs> you know you can't yeah. ask line managers to do everything no and it can't be their fault when it, it isn't happening either, you know, because that's the blame, isn't it? It's like, I always think of it like a beach ball, like the blame gets, like you can catch that blame because you're supposed to be supervising. Yeah. And, and and are you right? You know, you said earlier about how we look after ourselves and, you know, I know we've talked before about like the duty of self-care, which is kind of how I see it. Like there has to be a balance between what we do as an individual to take responsibility, what we expect from the organisation, what we expect from our leadership and managers, you know, and, and the systems and processes and everything. It's a, it's a multifaceted yes. thing, it, you know, um, you, but actually if we recognize and we know ourselves well enough to know what we, what helps us and what works for us and what we need to do in order to keep ourselves well, that's a big part of the pie, isn't it? It's a big chunk of it. Well, I mean, I got to the age of 40 
with two kids. And I didn't know any of this stuff. Mm. Are you with me? And the consequences were disastrous. Mm. And I was a superintendent. God knows what it was like to work for me. I, I dread, you know, I, people sort of laugh about it when they hark back to those days. I wasn't a nasty person, but I was blind in a sense to my impact on other people, mm. including my family, right? Uh, I was in debt, horrendous debt. There was, there was, it was just, there was so many negative indicators as well. Behaviors, yeah. That, as you say, I, that was my responsibility. It wasn't the job's fault no. that I was doing that. The job was paying me a superintendent's wage and I was nearly bankrupting myself. Yeah. Yeah, are you with me? So it's not always the individual's fault. People can fall on hard times. Things can happen to you, can't they, that are beyond your control. Yeah. But, you know, looking after your physical health, how much alcohol you drink, trying to get good sleep, these nutrition, all these things, focusing on your relationships, all these things are positive contributors towards your mental health. And I think that's where we can help. What I want to do, Alex, with this is I want to, and I think all organisations need to stop throwing money at interventions and first aid or whatever it might are you with me i get it right people need to do like this need to be seen to be doing something about this yeah. problem, and the, and the lang- problem. And the language, but the language around it also keeps it safe it keeps it at an arm's length doesn't it like interventions yeah. and- looks like i've done something yeah so due to care i've covered myself right stop spending money on it for a minute yeah. ask your people what they think is causing stress and how much of it's avoidable and then start working with them chip away at those things and you'll get a bounce off your people straight away because they'll think they're being listened to for once they'll believe they're being listened to well what i want to do is with policing i think you know when we get when you join up as a cop you go to this clothing stores and you get all this kit right? you get a pair of big boots and a, a you know a stab vest with you know, parva and your baton and then we give them taser and all this sort of stuff yeah and what i want them to get is wearable technology that monitors key indicators of their health, hand that to them, train them in it, give them the equipment, yeah? Get data from that that's anonymized at the organizational level so we can start seeing where we need to do work organizationally to help people. And the individual is then equipped to understand the sleep, the diet, fatigue, um, you know, how heart rate goes up, Therefore, cortisol, yeah. when you're responding to certain incidents or when certain things, are you with me? So yeah. we let them in, help them interpret that data. And we've got like, we've got, we've got the right balance then between individual and organisation. Yeah, definitely. We've got to get it almost as like issue kit this. Are you with me? Rather, because most people are wearing te- technology on the wrist now. Well, yeah, I was going to say I'm wearing yeah, one. And, but- and, and I think, I mean, there's been things over the years where, um, you know, people have tried to develop something to monitor that and have done. But the idea of it, and I've never agreed with this, is that the idea of it is to have it and then for that to be sending information to, say, line, the line manager. No. And no. I just think, I've, and I've always thought, we, were in, we did a project actually in, in a group of schools and part of the project was that we could have had our own app that could have done that and I said no we don't I don't want I don't want no. to be doing a project where that's involved because it's not that you're kind of saying well I'm feeling terrible today I'm going to tell my boss I feel terrible today 
and then they're going to do something about it. Like, that's not that's not nobody healthy. will trust it. No, it's your your body, your data. Yeah, you do. You deal with it. It's your responsibility. Yeah. You are your responsibility. Yeah, your body, your data. I mean, there's loads of people going to doctors, getting antidepressants, not telling the job. Loads of people. Yeah. They're getting sleep tablets. They're getting all sorts of stuff. Mm. But you know, you, you speak to people about the health issues. You know, and if you get to that point of trust with people, and people don't even know what health issues they've got with people they're working with mm. every day of the week, because people are very reluctant to share that stuff, understandably. Mm. And the last thing you want to do is give it to the HR department. So that when you go for your advanced driving course, go, oh, hold on a minute, you said you got stressed when you drove faster recently off your wearable technology, you can't, you can't get your dream job. Well, of course you're going to get stressed if you're driving a car 110 miles an hour. Yeah. That's your body switching on so it can function at that level. Yeah. The key issue is, is it coming back down? Yeah, are you having negative coping strategies to deal with that? What's the impact of that on your life and the, the work that you're doing, et cetera, et cetera? So I think there's some fascinating stuff now that's been looked at, Alexis, that is on another level to even 10 years ago. Mm-hmm. And it's not just in policing, the, the armed forces. You know, we, we work with, as, as I say, people all over the world, actually. And there's more and more sophistication now and an understanding that, you know, nobody's just going to give you their health data. No way. You know, they're not going to wear this thing if you say it's got to go to the HR department or hockey It'd literally just be in the bin in the car park. It's for you, you know what I mean? It's for you, you know, and um, I think, you know, I look at it like you mentioned it before, you know, you, on a, on a, on a, I, I, Ian Esketh and I did a paper on this called Managing the People Fleet, right? Because early doors, I had to get across to senior people that how much you spend on your vehicle fleet compared to your people fleet. And how much infrastructure you've got around that vehicle fleet. Mm. It's, first of all, it's got a dashboard to tell you when it's not very well. You've got a load of BMW technicians ready to wire it up, fix it, get it back out there. Mm. What have you got for your people? You haven't even got a dashboard. No. You have not got a clue what's going on with their health. Um, yet you, we insist on doing a bleep test with them once a year, which isn't <laughs> an indicator of other, anything other than I can run backwards and forwards for six, seven minutes or whatever, you know. And I get that people need to be fit, but I think it's the, uh, it's just a, it's, you know, the, the answer to it is a more sophisticated approach where we treat black adults Mm. we work on the assumption that people are very interested in their own health Mm. um, and then we encourage and support them to get there and then we have organizational data that tells us what we need to fix yes what what's causing stress in the organization that we can then hone in on instead of carpet bombing people with big programs where they get sheep dipped into things around health Mm. it's a very unique thing your health um, and therefore, the, you know, the the only person who can understand your mental health is you. Mm. I, I'm not. I'm telling you this. You know this better than I do. But yeah, you know but I mean? it, it's like yeah. But you, you'd think, wouldn't you, that we, we could find an indicator that tell us that everybody's mental health is a certain way every day when it's not possible. No, no, and, and accepting it's not possible, but in but finding different creative ways of being able to get as much information and data as possible as you can. I think. 
is so important. I think one of the things with Oscar Kilo is, you know, you know, it's not a project, it's an ongoing investment yes. in data and, you know, um, making sure that interventions are evidence-based and just information is evidence-based, you know, like the fatigue stuff you've yeah. done, the sleep, the, um, even the well-being dog, you know, I was, I was talking um, yeah. about that the other day, you know, all of those um, aspects are, they're opening up the conversation they're opening up the thought processes around some of these themes that we've been seeing in mental health services consistently for years and actually now more so you know the complexities of what people are coping yeah. with and struggling with is even higher yeah. and, and, and you know the, the I look at contact right so when we first started it people said well we don't want a strategy that sits on a shelf mm -hmm. fine you know because they're, they're very mobile 24 7 staff mm -hmm. you know they're, they're they're in buildings away from headquarters where all the well-being events are on and all this sort of stuff. You know what I mean? All the well-being events at 10 a.m. till 4 p.m. on a Wednesday when most people on nights are in bed type of thing. <laughs> yeah. So we bought one van. We bought one van. Yeah. Because one of the force had got a van we kitted out. So we bought one van. We've got 10 vans now. Yeah. As you know. And these vans are all booked out this year. They rotate around forces doing health checks. We have had people, you've got to park these vans between the back door of the Nick and the response vehicle, put tea and coffee on and donuts, which aren't very good for your health, but <laughs> they lure people no, in. No, just one. <laughs> they lure you in, yeah, and get your blood pressure checked. All the vans are kitted out with health equipment. They've got counselling rooms in them, some of them. And we've had people with blood pressure so high on the way to the job, they've had to retain it. Really? We've had people do a psych risk assessment you know, with, with the with the right support around them, and they've declared suicide ideation, and they're on the way to a job. And it's twenty thousand contacts plus we had at those vans last year, and that's in COVID. We had them at G seven, COP twenty six. We send them to um, funerals of colleagues. We send them to major incidents to forward deploy them, and that is the tip of the spear for us, right? The dogs are even more of a success story so far because they're out there. Yeah. And this, what they're doing is, you know, somebody uh, I saw somewhere accused the dogs of being a publicity stunt the other day. So it's an insult to intelligence that these are volunteers. Yeah. They, if, you, if they knew what they were talking about, that those people, which they clearly don't, they'd know that that don't, the dog. It's not about the dog. No. It's about walking into an environment and everyone's stopping. Yeah and feeling okay to talk about something that previously they didn't feel okay to talk about. No. That's what's happening with the dogs. Yeah. Not just stroking dogs here, no. right? We're creating a safe space, a psychologically safe space for a conversation. Mm. And that is what's happening. Mm. And that's preventative, it's positive, mm. and it's actually shows people who work in our organization that we actually give a toss about them. Yeah. And we're actually backing up what we talk about around mental health with physical assets. Well, it's that taking it to them, isn't it? You yes. Can, you could have your website, you can have your research, yeah, you yeah. can be doing podcasts yeah. and everything else that you do. Yeah. But actually physically going out into the, the forces and positioning yeah. yourself in the, you know, when, 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 the, when you're needed, but also being on that rotor basis so that there's always a continual kind of presence I think so important it's a visual thing as well as anything else isn't it it is yeah and you know I mean we've had things where you know we've had a murder of a colleague and if and a funeral and we've sent the vans down and you know it's it, somebody's come in the van and said I just want somewhere out of the public eye where I can be on my own 
you know, because it's tough. This this was a colleague of mine, and I'm on, you know, I'm on a point for the for the funeral, and I'm here to pay my respects, but I'm on duty. You know, I don't want to show my emotions in front of a, a newspaper reporter, particularly. No. You know what I mean? So it's like um, safe haven, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, I, you know, I'm, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm somebody who's seen a lot of things. Are you with me? And I, I've, I feel I've coped with it quite well because I'm from that generation, quite frankly. But it doesn't make me immune to the needs of other people. Mm. And that's the thing. The thing for me is, I I, I always think is that it's even in my family, you know, my children and things like that, I think they're not me. You know, how I would respond to that is same with clients. If if I would respond to that in a certain way, they aren't me with all my experience and all my conditioning and everything else that comes with you. Yeah, yeah. You know, you have to kind of think they are they are their own entity in their own right. And actually their response is is, there's a reason for it. Um, yeah. And that does put you into that more compassionate, you know, kind of what's happened to you, the trauma-informed idea about rather what's wrong with you, what's happened to you. It, it changes your position, doesn't it, on being yeah. more open and empathic to, yeah. to somebody else's responses, even if, you know, we've all been in situations where we go, really, is that, is what, how is that, what is that reaction all about? You know, yeah. comparison to yeah. what's just happened, but it isn't about yeah. what's just happened. No, <laughs> it's not, and stuff. I think... That's the thing with it, just accepting that, um, you know, people are different. Mm. And, you know, we're, we're seeing turnover rates increase. Mm. And people are going, oh, it's because these lot can't cope. We're recruiting the wrong people. Right, OK, good luck with that one. Because you're recruiting society. There's a great saying, it's police are the public, the public are the police, right? We recruit from society. So whatever is happening in society ends up in the police. Right, that's the way it is. That's the way yeah. it should be. There isn't enough yeah. supply coming from anywhere well, else. We're not a military force like in some com- countries. We're a civil police service that works on the base of consent. Yeah. And that's fundamentally uh, quite different about British police. And it's one of the things that we all talk about as being great. So, they all, you know, when, when, when there's people sit down and then they go, it's not for me, this. You know, I saw the job. I thought I wanted to be a cop. Um, maybe I was a PCSO before. This happens quite a bit. Can I go back to being a PCSO? Because it's it's more me. Yeah, of course you can. There's a big guilt trip with it, with this. It's like a walk of shame for some reason that you haven't cut the mustard. Mm. I'll tell you what, Alexis, I say to people, I wish some of the people that I've had to work with for 30 years have walked out the door in the first year. Yeah. Right? Because they've robbed a wage off the taxpayer, quite frankly, some of them. Yeah. And we all know those people exist. They weren't cut out for the job. They shouldn't have been here in the first place. And I wish they'd left. Mm. Yeah. So I'm not saying that the people leaving now are like that. I'm saying feel confident to decide this isn't for you like any other job. Mm. And that's going to happen anyway because people are more likely to move around jobs now. Yeah. Just in culture. Gonna, yeah, absolutely. They're not going to do one job for life. They want a life for jobs, not a job for life. Mm. So stop beating yourself up about it, but onboard them properly. So give them a fighting chance yeah. and find out if they're walking out the door, whether there's anything we could have done differently mm. and then say, fantastic, go and be happy doing something else. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> like, like the great organisations that are up there, the top performing organisations mm. that you'll see, mm. they, they say, fine, mm. if you're going to move off from us, right, there's something better that you want to go and do and that's fine. Mm. Um, and you know they, they work on it. They reflect themselves then on what they can do to improve. 
Yeah, and it's actually recognizing that it isn't, I mean, it's, it, there isn't one size fits all, is it? You're not going to be a, it, people coming into the organization, into policing. For some, the, the fantasy of what it is sets them up to fail, but also the process, yeah. like I say, induction and everything else, if that's not right, that also sets them up to fail. If the mentorship's not right, if there's, you know, all those yeah. different kind of roles around them aren't, aren't the right people or aren't set up in the right way. But you're right, in, in other organizations, if it's not for you, much more now so than ever before you know it used to be quite punishing if you're going to leave a job but now people are kind of like it's okay we don't expect you to stay for no. 30 years it's not the expectation I mean, anymore. you've got to blame tv for some of it alex or something <laughs> Let's be, i mean you know it's it's like you know you watch some of these tv programs and think, that's what you think is going to happen when you land yeah. it, i mean it makes for great tv doesn't it but uh, you know, everybody marching around in tunics, saluting and stuff all the time, and you know the all the corruption stuff. I mean, I tell you what, I did like that Martin Freeman one. Responder. Oh, well, I liked it to a certain point. Then it got sort of dead, sort of over oh, the top <laughs> drama. Which you know, it's got to be like exciting, hasn't it? But some of the things that were depicted in there mm. made me feel very uncomfortable because it was spot on uh, in terms of how it is. Mm. There's, a, there's a scene where he deals with sudden death. And I, I, honestly, I felt, quite, I felt quite sad after watching it, actually, because I thought that was me. Yeah. I'd become so, I don't know, numb mm. to this. You know, to, where I were, you do three in a Sunday morning, you know what I mean? Yeah. And you, you just become numb and desensitized to it and watching an actor do it and he did it brilliantly it was i mean it's the script's been done by an ex-police officer oh, well, there you go, then. Um, you from down there you know who who's up you know so it's well informed type of thing and it really did i watched it and i've got like a bit of a shiver it made me sort of reflect on oh my god that was me in the main it's it's not nice to watch no no and you know i didn't even realize it was happening at the time just it's just something as we went, we talked about earlier, that develops as a, almost a defense mechanism. You've got, to, you've got to survive, haven't you? Numbness is yeah, a great way of surviving, actually. If it's, you know, the deceased people's family, Alexis, it is not great. Um, you know what I mean? And uh, I used to use this analogy, you know, when I was talking to new recruits and stuff, and I said, you know, compassion was discretionary. Mm. Uh, you know, you can't make somebody be compassionate, you can't measure it, you can't, you know, you can't capture it anywhere. I said, but, you know, if I, someone comes knocking at my door with some news, the sort of news I've knocked on people's door with, I want compassion. Mm. You know, I do want competency, but I want compassion. Yeah. Because one of the privileges of being the police is that you are there at that moment in people's lives quite often. That's their one moment, yeah. awful moment. And it's a, and it's captured. It's a forever. Pol it's a Polaroid or a video. Forever. Yeah, absolutely. And you know, we talk about this, C Alexis, because in that highly sensitized emotional experience, these things have the biggest impact. Mm. You know, people, people um, are very, very vulnerable at that point. You know, victims of crime, victims of exploitation, vulnerable people, you know, death messages, this type of stuff. You know, we've got people who are on the front line 
for 15, 20, 25 years. And they still maintain contact with a deceased person's family long after we've asked them to. That isn't something we've told them to do or we're measuring them on or we're ordering them to do. They do it because they're a thoroughly decent human being. And um, more people do that than the bad people in the cross. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And you have to so, um, that's the other thing. You know, you, th- this is the thing that gets us fired up in Oscar Kilo because I constantly bring the team back to the human interaction that's at the end of all this stuff. Mm. You know what I mean? And that's, that's what matters. Mm. It's the why question. Yeah. All the other stuff is the what and the how. Yeah. The why question is that very human element of policing that requires the police officer or member of police staff health mm. to be as best as it possibly can be. Mm. Yeah. yeah. Completely. And mental health, particularly, because that determines attitude, behaviors, and all that sort of stuff. You know what I mean? Mm. So, um, I think it, you know, we've come a long way in a short period of time and we are well established. You know, the police covenant's been, uh, the vast majority of stuff that's in the police covenant is around mental health and wellbeing. Mm. That is a, that is a going through uh, the legal process now. It's almost there to be enshrined effectively in law mm. that um, the, the health and wellbeing of police officers, their families and retirees. Mm is a priority. Mm. We've never done much with families in UK policing, so we've got a lot of work to do there, mm. which we're working on. Um, and, you know, we've got, a, we've got a seat at the table um, for what is a quite small little function in a £16 billion sector. <laughs> we've, we, we're here to sort of lead horses to war, to help people get better at things. We're also here to remind them that what this is all about. Definitely. And I think, I mean, on that note, I, I, it's been fantastic to speak to you and to, because I, I know how passionate you are about this and that really comes across in, in when you, you know, just how um, embedded you are in this whole sector and, you know, you've embedded yourself personally and professionally in it. And I think that really, really comes across. And I think it's what's needed as well in this sector, um, because, you, you know, this isn't a, it's not a quick win. And it needs to be something that's constantly kind of brought to the forefront, doesn't it? And like you say, put into the covenant and things that make sure that it's actually, it can't go away. It, it, it will be centre stage if you like, nice. for, for, the, for the future and that legacy that will yeah. be, you know, um, a, a result of that as well. Yeah, it's, um, it's not the new garlic bread, as Peter Kay used to call it. <laughs> No, it's not the flavour of the month and a trendy thing to say. In fact, the well-being is not a great word, actually, I don't think. But anyway, I mean, it's there, isn't it? I think it is... People originally say, it's all pink and fluffy, this. We're going to have tofu bars and, you know, Indian massages and all this sort of stuff. So I'll say the reason you're backing off it, chum, is because this isn't pink and fluffy. It's too tough for you to deal with. So, you know, the, it, that's the reality of this area of work. And that's, uh, a massive, that's an absolute uh, 180 on how it's yeah. usually seen, isn't it? Because, yeah. you know, and I've, been, I've, I've, you know, as I said to you before, I'm far from pink and fluffy. And, and I, it always amuses me when people expect me to be because of what I do for a living. 
but you can't be pink and fluffy in this you know you're dealing with people's lives that, ultimately that's what this is about and um and their survival as well in some cases yeah yeah, yeah. so to avoid it and put it in that category of being something that's just a bit of frou-frou really just shows you, shows <laughs> oh. you the level <laughs> It's like, I mean, it's like therapy, isn't it? With all the everyone in America's got a therapist, but it's you know what? If you were on the receiving end of a very good therapist, it is the toughest first experience. And yeah. I can't have an argument with my wife, right? I'm not in therapy with her, but everything leads back to me. <laughs> you know, where's your anger coming from? Where's that comment come from? What's the source of it, right? So. The reason people don't want to do personal development, want to call this stuff pink and fluffy, is because actually it's a failure to recognise most of it's uh, a human thing, and yeah. you know it's it's um, it's about you taking personal responsibility a lot of it. You know, having said that, you know I'm I'm passionate about the organisational side of the deal as well. Yeah, um, I talk a lot about that now. You, rather than push it all back to the individual. That's not what we're talking about. No, but it's a balance, as you've said, even like with the yeah. technology, isn't it? It's the balance between yeah. the two. And I think you can't focus on one without the other. Um, and it isn't all the fault of one area and no. another. So you have to get that balance right. And um, and it is, you know, I talk to a lot of people and they talk about doing the work. I'm doing the work. And it is, you know, and you hear that a lot in podcasts as well. You know, I was listening to Steve Bartlett's podcast, Diary of a CEO, the other day, and he was, you know, they talk about doing the work. And I think the work never ends. No, so whether no, it's that's organization it. or whether it's personally, it never ends. And actually, that can be quite daunting or it can be quite exciting. It depends on where you position yourself with that, I think. Well, I heard a talk from a, um, a podcast I was listening to actually from somebody from the States and said, uh, organizational well-being and organizational development is like making love to a 500 kilogram orangutan you only stop when the orangutan tells you you can stop <laughs> i thought that is a great that's exactly what it is right there's no end to it no. it's um it's a it's a constant process but the you know you can have indicators and measures of progress yes and I see a lot of good stuff in the indicators mm. about people feeling more confident. You know, so new recruit surveys yeah. on the uplift, 80 odd percent. I feel confident talking to my line manager Brilliant. about my mental health mm. monthly. Yeah. I wouldn't have spoken to my line manager about mental health monthly when I joined the police. <laughs> do you know what I mean? A decade. <laughs> do you know what I mean? So it's, it's, um, there's some positive stuff. Um, I think there's always going to be a tension in an organisation where cultural change is happening mm. and a new generation's coming in with expectations Another generation's having to deal with it, which isn't easy because everyone's busy and, you know, we've, um, we've, we've got challenges of our own, haven't we? It's, it's must not be easy. It's always evolving. I think we are we are always evolving. Society is, you know, the needs yeah. are. You don't have to look off the last two years to see how much we've had to evolve and adapt yes. to what's going on. And if we don't, you know, even services need to evolve. Everything needs to be moving as those as that evidence comes through, as we're as we're seeing the patterns and themes that come through from the next generation. You know, I see it in my three children and the breadth of what they, you know, just the the lack of um, 
judgment that they have you know the acceptance they have around people those all yes those dif- all the difference that, and the diversity that they accept without yes. question yes. blows my mind because you know obviously i work with people every day and those those um restrictions are in every conversation just about you know judgments and yeah. fear and everything else so you can't keep doing the same thing and expecting expecting a different result when you've got different people and different yes. needs coming through yeah. it just doesn't work yeah and the world-class organizations know this yeah they're on the hunt for talent yeah retention is a big thing for them advocacy is a big thing it's a performance issue as well it's a bottom line issue mm. and you know it is hard for the police service you know the the amount of recruitment that's coming in which is a good thing is putting real pressure on that onboarding mm. and that learning process mm. and it's you are throwing people in at the deep end of yeah. a really tough job mm. um so we've got to accept that that the more experienced people in the workplace are under massive pressure because everyone's relying on them. Mm. You're the experienced person on a team and everybody else has got less than four years service in. You're going to be thinking, oh, on top of what I've got to deal with, they're all looking to me, yeah. um, you know, because that's what happens. We learn the, the job on the job quite often. I was working with someone yesterday, a police officer, and... and um... Uh, she was the most experienced person in her team with four years service and you know well I'm the experienced one and I was thinking I don't class four years as experienced obviously more experienced than the people in the team but you know it's that kind of expectation isn't it yeah. on that person yeah. then and what you know if they're a relatively young person as well themselves and you know all that stuff that we've got it's just taking into consideration as you've said that wave of where the organization's going and what that means in terms of Young, younger, newer recruits, and then also the dynamic with the people who've been there for longer service and how they feel about all of that. You, you're managing all of those different expectations, aren't you? It's just being you are, which is why you know, Alex, you've got to get you know, well-being holds the key to a lot of this as an agenda, as a conversation, mm-hmm. uh, staff engagement is the you know, it's the bedfellow of well-being. Yeah, you've got to get voice and lived experience. You've got to sit in the work with people and watch them. And not think everything's got to be fixed by five o'clock. <laughs> yeah. You know, it's enough to listen and recognise, yeah, it must be tough for you with 15 years servicing when everybody else has got three years servicing. I'm recognising that. I'm acknowledging it. You know, we respect you for it. What can we do to help you? Yeah. And most people will walk away thinking, well, that's great. Somebody's actually listened to me. And acknowledge that this is tough. Yeah. And say, listen, you know, there's not a lot we can do because <laughs> that is the way it is at the moment. Um, the, they can't do anything about the age, the service profile. What we can do is listen to you and acknowledge and recognize what you're doing yeah. and hear your voice mm. and genuinely, you know, um, take an interest in it. Mm. Which I think, you know, some people find quite hard to do because the reasons we've been discussing. Yes. I think it's, um, I think it's, it's a massive sort of paradigm shift for a lot of people to listen without judging, listen without fixing, you know, in the in the right way. And to make promises that that can't come to fruition, that won't, but you know, it's not yeah. aren't possible because I think that's the other thing that. Well, well, I say to most senior people, you know, the so that the least worst impact you can have on their on them trying to get the job done because we are we're, we're terrible for it managers of putting things in that 
don't add a lot of value, quite frankly, sometimes, but it looks like we're doing something. It makes us feel better. <laughs> yeah. No, well, I'm a manager, so I've got to manage type yeah. of thing. Well, there's a there's a friend of Ian and I, Celine Schillinger, who's a real sort of global thought leader, and she's just done a book called Dare to Unlead. Oh, yes, I saw because, that, yeah. Yeah, because she's like, you know, actually, the best thing you can do... Let go. Let go, mm. yeah. Mm. Do your job. Stop trying to do their job for them type of thing, you know. And, uh, yeah, it's a very provocative book, you know. But uh, you see, the thing is, it. and the thing with the police is every now and again, you do need somebody just to get a grip of things and go, right, this is what we're doing. Mm. Um, and so, you you know, it's not an either or. No, but it's boundaried. That's the thing, yes. isn't it? That's the difference. It's a boundaried. I was talking about leadership today with somebody and I was saying that, you know, it's, it's getting the balance between being being li- listening supportive but also knowing when you have to say no knowing when you've got to do yeah, yeah. know when you've got to yeah. be authoritative you know and, and it actually if you've got a leaning towards like as you said you know kind of commanding and that is your only thing that you've got in your toolkit yeah in, in your toolkit yeah and you lose yeah. all those other options that's, and that's right that's where yeah. it starts to cause stress for the for the person yeah, yeah. doing the managing but also for the people in the team as well yeah yeah mm. there used to be a certain point at preston north end football ground called windy corner right for obvious reasons, it was just a horrendous place to stand the whole match. This, you know, particularly. When, yeah, I remember a new a new uh, recruit coming. Going, what? Why was standing here? And the sergeant was saying, "This is the trouble nowadays." You know, you've got people saying, "Why are we doing stuff?" Yeah. Just stand there. <laughs> there look, I actually said to her, "I said there is no point whatsoever in you standing here, but we just have to do it." <laughs> Anyway, okay. okay. <laughs> I'm not going to pretend there's any point to what you're doing. I'm not today. going to make something up. <laughs> We're all getting paid. You'll get a pie at lunchtime and a cup of soup, and that will be the end of Jobs the match. Jobs are good in. <laughs> yeah. Let's not pretend there's any point to what we're doing no, today. No, exactly. You know, so uh, I think that's the sort of thing that um, is quite well received by people, actually. Yeah. Rather than telling them off and pretending there is a point to it. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Just justifying it no matter what. Yeah, that's right. Oh, thanks ever so much for coming to speak to me. I really appreciate it. It's been great. And I'll, we'll probably do this over two episodes, I think, because we've covered such okay. a good round. It would be great to, to do it that way, I think. Okay, um, it's been a pleasure. So um, if anybody wants to know any further details about Oscar Keeler, I've said this kind of in every podcast, it's just really heading to the website, isn't it? Yeah. see what's available and you know um and if the the well-being um vans are around and accessing those and being able to kind of all the podcasts are on there yeah. there are um, more and more courses now being made available we've got sophie bostock the sleep doctor yeah one of the leading experts on sleep and fatigue all her stuff's on there yeah and there's more webinars that we've commissioned from her this year brilliant um so there's all sorts on there and a lot of links to other things as well that are going on brilliant that's great thanks andy thanks ever so much for your time nice to see you have a good weekend bye take care bye thank you for listening to the keeping the peace podcast it's available wherever you listen to your podcasts and if you subscribe you'll be notified of the next episode as soon as it's available we'd love to hear your feedback and ideas for future podcasts so please do comment or get in touch on our social media platforms for either fortis therapy and training or oscar kilo 